and welcome to the Earth Rangers podcast. I'm Earth Ranger Emma, and I hope you scurry sea dogs are ready, because today we're going to learn all about knots. of rope here, and I've been practicing all morning. All hands on deck, scallywags. Are ye ready to learn about ye knots? Old Emma's gonna get ye ship shape in no time. Hey, Emma, what are you doing? Doing a show about knots. Uh, the red knots? Red knots, black knots, big knots, overhand knots, the anchor hitch, the thief knot. Kind of red knot. Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, that makes a lot more sense as an episode topic. Do I know what a red knot is? Uh, yeah, I certainly do. I mean, the real question is, do our listeners know what a red knot is? It's a type of bird, right? Right. Hey, let's see what else you know about this creature. It's time for... True or false. True or false. True or false. True or false. Okay, Earth Rangers, here's one for the experts out there. True or false, red knots are born in Brazil, and they are so in tune with their habitat that they never fly further away than five kilometers from their nests. Hmm, what do you think? Well, if you said false, you're right. The red knot is, in fact, born in the Arctic. This colorful sandpiper is a striking bird with terracotta orange, gold, and black feathers. Red knots start their lives as eggs and nests built on rocky cliffs. Both mother and father birds incubate their eggs for about three weeks, and after the chicks are able to fly, the family moves to lake shores and meadows to eat. A lot. They've got a really long trip ahead of them, and they need to fill up before they leave. They prefer seafood like mussels, clams, shrimp, and horseshoe crab eggs are all favorites. Yum! After they're all fueled up, red knots head out on an incredibly long journey south. How long? Up to 15,000 kilometers! They spend the winter in South America before heading back to their northern home. Red knots aren't the only birds that migrate a really long way. In fact, there are lots of birds that can make a terrifically long trip. You know what? I think this calls for a top five countdown. Top five migrating birds. Number five. Have you ever wanted to fly high? Like really high? If that sounds like your idea of a good time, you'd love being a bar-headed goose. They're the highest flying migratory birds. How high can they fly? Over eight kilometers in the air? These birds are native to Asia and have even been known to fly over the Himalayas. Number four. We could hardly have a top five list without our old friend, the red knot. When the red knot goes on its epic flight, it needs to stop over to rest. And where do they stop? Well, one of the places is Bahia de San Antonio, a protected area in Argentina. 
Earth Rangers is working with the International Conservation Fund of Canada and the Argentinian researcher Patricia Gonzalez to keep this area safe from human interference. Number three. Have you ever heard of a northern weotar? It's a strange name for a tiny songbird with a really cool ability. These little songbirds are only about 16 centimeters long and only weigh about 25 grams. But despite their diminutive size, they can fly for over 14,000 kilometers each way between the Arctic and Africa. Talk about a long distance traveler. Number two. Just because they can't fly doesn't mean they don't travel. Adelie penguins travel all around Antarctica, up to 13,000 kilometers. These adorable penguins follow the sun north from the Ross Sea and stick close to the edge of the ice as it expands, so they have easy access to their favorite fishy foods. And finally, number one. Okay, what if I told you that there's a bird that makes an 80,000 kilometer trip every single year? Meet the Arctic Tern, the bird with the world's longest migration all the way from the Arctic to the Antarctic and back again. If an Arctic tern does this trip every year for 30 years, they will have flown the equivalent of three trips to the moon and back. Talk about some serious airtime. Birds are amazing, Earth Rangers. What birds do you see in your neighborhood? I love watching for blue jays, cardinals, and even sweet little sparrows. And my kitty, Sir Scratchwan, also enjoys bird watching. You know, from a safe location behind a window. Okay, we learned about migratory birds, and now we know that the red knot has a really impressive migration route, even if it's not as impressive as the Arctic tern. But I'm sure that there are many more cool facts about this bird that I don't know. But I do know who would know. Patricia Gonzalez from the International Conservation Fund of Canada and Fundacion Inalafquen, who studied red knots for over 25 years. So I'm sure she knows everything there is to know about them. Hey, what do you think we call her? Hola, Patricia González aquí. Oh, um, hi, is this Patricia González? Oh, who is it? Oh, hi, Patricia. My name is Earth Ranger Emma. Um, I was wondering if I could ask you some questions about the Red Knot. Hi, Emma. Very nice to talk to you. Of course, I'm happy to answer. Oh, awesome. Am I reaching you in Argentina right now? Yes, that's why I was surprised to hear you talking in English. <laughs> How's the weather? It's very sunny and very nice. We are going into the summer, not like you that are going into the winter. Oh, you're so lucky. It's freezing here. <laughs> hey, do you live close to the Bahia de San Antonio? Am I saying that right? Yes, I am indeed in the Bahia de San Antonio. This is very, very south in Patagonia. Oh, wow. And are the red knots there right now enjoying the warm sunshine? Uh, no, not now in Bahia de San Antonio because they already passed to further south, to the tip of the continent in Tierra del Fuego, the land of the fires. They are already there. So they were traveling from, let's say, end of July, leaving the Arctic and arriving now to the tip of the continent. They are going to spend our summer, which is your winter, there. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Yes. Can you tell us a bit more about the Bahia? Why do red knots love it so much? Well, 
here where I live, the red knots will stop when we come back to the Arctic, when going north. This will be in March, April. They will leave Tierra del Fuego and will stop here for about one month to eat lots and lots and lots of plums and get very fat. You know, they will arrive to a weight of about 120 grams, which is, mm, I don't know, in Canada, but here it's about a half of a butter piece. And then they will eat a lot and get as fat as double, about 200 grams. You know, for what? For what? Because from here, they will travel 6,000 kilometers without stopping. This means flying all the time, like a plane, to reach the north of South America. So they will stay flying for about six days, imagine, without eating, without getting water. Whoa, that's so cool. So you mentioned that they eat a lot before they start their journey. But what do they eat? And do they change their diet according to where they are? Yes, yes, that's a very good question. Because they love to eat mollusks. Mollusks are like little snails or mussels or plums. But in the Arctic, they eat insects. In Delaware Bay, this is in the United States, they eat something different. They eat eggs, little eggs, like two millimeters eggs of horseshoe crab. But in the other sites, they usually like to eat mussels and clams. Wow, they eat so many different things. Oh, I heard that they stick their bills in the sand in order to find food. Is that true? How does that work? Oh, that's incredible. I admire the way they find the food. The clams are buried in the sand, so when the tide getting down, the birds are following the edge of the water or near the edge, and they are picking, picking very, very quickly the surface, introducing their bill into the sand. And you know, this bill is not a hard bill. It's very soft. They can have different shapes. So when they pick into the sand, they have some organs, sensitive organs, in the tip of the bill, that they detect differences in the pressure. When there is a clam, the pressure that they produce with the bill is like a signal that travels through the water, goes to the clam and gets back to the bill. So when there is a clam, they get the signal and they can catch a very, very nice clump and eat. And this is very interesting because they don't use their eyes to find this clump. So they can eat both at night or during the day. And because they travel so far distances, they have to do everything very fast in the annual cycle. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Yeah, don't you see? Hmm. <laughs> hey, is it true that you've been studying red knots for over 25 years? Why did you decide to study them? Well, you know, I, I didn't born here. I came to live here about 30 years ago. I was finishing my studies at university, and I had to work on birds. But I knew nothing about birds, really. I didn't want to work on birds, but it was my only one possibility. So I went to the beaches, and I learned about birds. 
And I decided, because at that time, a factory was going to be built. And I was worried that the factory will pollute the water. And I was wondering, this place will be important for shorebirds and for other birds. So I have to study this. And then I began with the university to study the birds, to see if the place was important or not for the birds. At the beginning, I found nothing. I went for one or two months, and I found almost nothing, just gulls. But one day, they appear because they migrate. So they arrive. And for my surprise, I found a lot of shorebirds, thousands and thousands of shorebirds. And what it means when the shorebirds are in one place? It means that the place is very important because it's a wetland that produces a lot of food, not only for the birds, but for the fish and for humans too. That's a really cool story. But on a more serious note, why are red knots at risk? And what can we do to help them? I think we can do a lot of things. But first, let's talk why they are at risk. One of the reasons was the overfishing of horseshoe crabs in the lower bay. They are trying to help many, many years ago by banning fishers and controlling. And now some of the populations were recovering. But there are other things that are not good for red knots. The wetlands where they stop are being modified by development or sometimes like here in Bahia de San Antonio, the problem we have is a lot of people like to go in ATB or vehicles on the beaches or with dogs. So what happens when they are roosting in a stopover in migration, they really need to sleep. I remind that flying takes energy and they need to get fat to make this long distance migration. And to get that before migration, they need to rest. If there are a lot of disturbances by people, vehicles, they cannot roost. If there are dogs running behind them, they cannot eat. And they have to go and eat to another place which is not as good. So what is the result of that? The result is that they cannot store the energy they need. That's why we are protecting them. This is what we do here. We have rangers in those places that the red knots like to use for roosting and feeding sites for them to get fat and make this migration. This year, researchers working in Quebec, with Yves Aubry, told me that the breeding season was fantastic. And this is great because red knots are in declining. And they are not very often having a good breeding season. So we are very happy that this season was very, very good. Wow, I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, yes, yes. Patricia, I could talk to you about red knots all day, but I think I have to say goodbye for now. It's been so amazing talking to you and learning so much about these incredible birds. Thanks for your time, and, and thank you for all of the wonderful work that you do. Well, thanks to you. Thanks to you. I'm very happy to be in touch with you. I will say goodbye in Spanish as well. So, hasta luego. Hasta luego. <laughs> Saludos para mis amigos. So, lots of hugs and regards from Argentina. Thank you, Emma. <laughs> thanks. Bye. Bye. Whoa, that was such an interesting interview. I learned so much about the red knots and the issues they're facing and... And I want to help them. And guess what? It's a very easy thing to do. 
You can go to the Earth Rangers app or to www.theearthrangershop.com and symbolically adopt your very own Red Knot plushie or a virtual Red Knot in the app. This adoption will help Patricia and the International Conservation Fund of Canada to protect this amazing bird. Earth Rangers! Okay, I know you've been waiting for it since the last episode, so it's finally time for... Emma's Chemistry? Chemistry Corner, brought to you with help from our friends at BASF. Last time we talked about how chemical reactions occur in all living creatures all the time, and how different animals use different chemical reactions. But today, I want to talk about one really important chemical reaction that happens in many creatures, but in no animal. Hmm, so in which creatures does it happen, you ask? Well, in plants and algae, and in some bacteria. That's right, I'm talking about photosynthesis. Photo. Photosynthesis. Synthesis. Photosynthesis. Photo means light, and synthesis means creation. So the word photosynthesis describes the way that plants can use light coming from the sun to create the food they need to grow. Imagine if you could just sit in the sun and get all the energy you needed. Chilling would be eating, and eating would be chilling. It's perfection. Anyways. Besides all the foods that plants make by photosynthesis, there's another super important byproduct of this reaction. Do you know what it is? <gasps> it's the oxygen we breathe! Yep. Without photosynthesis, we wouldn't have oxygen, and that would be a problem. So I think it's fair to say that photosynthesis is a really important chemical reaction. So how do plants do it? I mean, like, how do they use light to make the food they need? They have a special molecule in them called chlorophyll. And that's the molecule that gives them the green color we see on leaves. Chloro means green, BT dots. In biology, color molecules are called pigments, and chlorophyll is a type of pigment. With chlorophyll, plants are able to absorb light energy and convert it into chemical energy. Do you want to see chlorophyll? Well, I mean, it's impossible to see molecules because they're so tiny. But today, I'll show you how we can separate the chlorophyll from the other materials in the leaf and check out all the different pigments in the leaf, including chlorophyll. So roll up your sleeves for our first scientific experiment. It's called chromatography. For this experiment, you'll need a coffee filter, a pair of scissors, rubbing alcohol, a jar, a pen or pencil, a bowl with hot water, and different types of leaves. Could be spinach or lettuce. Spinach leaves actually work really well, but really any type of leaf you want is okay. It can also be really cool to compare between the pigment of different types of leaves. If you want to compare between different leaves, you'll need a few jars, one for each type of leaf. Oh, and instead of rubbing alcohol, you can totally use nail polish remover. Also, please ask a grown-up to help you find or handle these materials. You can hit pause right now in order to get them, and don't worry, I'll wait for you here. Waiting for my science buddies to do fun science with chromatography, chromatography. We're gonna find out what's in leaves. Oh, you're back? Okay, do you have everything? Cool, let's begin. 
tear the leaves into small pieces, like really small, as small as you can. You can use a kitchen knife, but be careful or ask a grown-up to do it for you. If you want, you can also crush them with your fingers. Put the pieces of leaves in the jar and pour a bit of rubbing alcohol or nail polish remover on top so it will cover them completely. But you don't really need much more than this. And then you close the jar. Carefully put the jar inside a bowl with hot water and let it sit for half an hour. Lift the jar and stir it from time to time. If the water gets cold, you can replace it. Fast forward to the future. After about half an hour, the liquid in the jar should become greenish or even dark green, depending on the type of leaf you're using. Using the scissors, cut a rectangular piece of coffee filter paper. It should be a little longer than the height of the jar and as flat as possible. Wrap the tip of the paper over the pen. You can use tape to hold it in place and place it on top of the jar so only the bottom edge of the paper touches the liquid in the jar. Be careful not to touch the jar wall. And then just let it sit for an hour or two. But you can keep watching it from time to time because like every scientific experiment, the results can sometimes be unexpected. The paper should soak the liquid immediately, but after an hour or two, you should start seeing stripes on the paper. All the pigments from the leaf are in the liquid. And when the liquid goes through the coffee filter paper, the pigments get stuck at different spots according to their chemical properties. So after enough time, you should see a few separate stripes on the paper. Each stripe should have a different color. One should be green or yellow and the other may be orange. You may see other colors too. It just depends on the type of leaf you used. The colors are all different pigments, the color molecules that are inside the leaf. And the green line is chlorophyll, the pigment molecule that plants use for photosynthesis. Phew, this experiment was hard work. But how cool is it to see what things like leaves are made of and what enables plants to use light in order to make their food? And did you know that real chemists use chromatography experiments like this in their labs all the time? It's true. Chromatography is a really useful method to separate materials from each other if you want to find out what something is made of. So it wasn't just a fun experiment to do, but something that's really useful in chemical research. And I'd even say that once you do this experiment, you're well on your way to becoming chemists yourselves. <laughs> well, next time we'll talk about one of my favorite topics in chemistry, chemistry and the environment. How to use chemistry to protect the planet like we Earth Rangers do. Oh, and we'll definitely do another experiment. You won't believe the cool thing that we can do with red cabbage. Check out the show notes for all the ingredients you'll need. Well, that was pretty fun. I hope you had a chance to follow along with your own experiment. How did yours turn out? I'd love to see the results. If you want to share, ask your parents to follow Earth Rangers on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and tag your photo as hashtag Emma's Chemistry. I can't wait to see all your pics. Okay, now to finish up today's episode, how about we listen to some terrific animal stories as told to us by Earth Rangers just like you? Today's story comes from Earth Ranger Elliot from Victoria, BC. Hi, my name is Earth Ranger Elliot. I am seven years old and I live in Victoria, BC, Canada. And I would like to tell you about my animal encounter story. <laughs> 
This spring, I went to Sand Cut Beach with my best friend Amelia and our families. We took the forest trail. We were so excited to get to the beach and go swimming, we ran way ahead of the grown-ups. They couldn't see us. We had just found the perfect spot on the beach. And then the grown-ups arrived a few minutes later and they said, Look behind you! Look at the trail! We looked back at the trail and there was a big crowd of people looking at the forest. Nobody was looking because we ran past a bear. We were like two meters away from the bear. We learned an important lesson that day. Always stay with the group when you're out in the wilderness. Oh, such a thrilling story, Earth Ranger Elliot. And that's a good lesson you learned, especially in areas like British Columbia, where it's quite possible to encounter bears and other large wildlife. I'm so glad everything turned out all right. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us, Earth Rangers. We love to hear your animal encounters. You can share your story at www.earthrangers.com podcast and click on the leave us a message button. Or you can always email us at podcast at earthrangers.com. And if you do it by December 15th, you'll be entered for a chance to win an Earth Rangers prize pack and feature your story on the podcast. Good luck! It's been quite the episode. From fascinating birds to photosynthesis, we've learned a lot. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to share the photos from your own chromatography experiment. Until next time, stay awesome, stay safe, and keep on ranging! Earth Rangers! Earth Rangers! Earth Rangers! Hello parents, homeschoolers, and teachers. Trusty Narrator here from the Who Smarted Podcast. Our 15-minute episodes are perfect for car rides, bedtime, break time, class time, or any time. We make learning science and history fun and funny for 7 to 11-year-olds with new episodes every week. Look for Who Smarted on any podcast platform or at whosmarted.com. And teachers get a free subscription to our ad-free version by clicking educators at whosmarted.com. Hey, animal lovers. Earth Ranger Emma here to tell you about my favorite app, the Earth Rangers app. By signing up for a free membership, you can access tons of fun content like daily animal trivia, puzzles, top ten lists, and my podcast, of course. In the app, you can send me notes by commenting on the episode pages. I just love hearing from you. You can also complete environmental missions, do eco-friendly crafts, and help protect animals. And if you use the code Emma in the code vault, you'll earn 25 bonus points to help you level up. Download today, and I'll see you in the app.